If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther. We'll be in chapter 8. It is found in, on page 437 in the Bible in the chairs. And if you're visiting us this morning and you do not own a Bible or a good Bible, please take that as our gift to you. Esther, chapter 8. If you're able to. That same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Then Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet, wept, and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter toward Esther, so she got up and stood before the king. She said, if it pleases the king and I have found favor with him, if the matter seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents, the scheme in Haman. The son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that will come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? King Ahasuerus said to Esther, the queen, and to Mordecai, the Jew, Look, I have given Haman's estate to Esther, and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews, and seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. On the 23rd day of the third month, that is, the month Sivan, the royal scribes were summoned. Everything was written exactly as in the officials of the 127 provinces from India to Kush. The edict was written for each province in its own script for each ethnic group in his own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in King Ahasuerus' name and sealed the edicts with the royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses bred in the royal stables. The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. A copy of the text, issued as law throughout every province, was distributed to all the peoples so that the Jews could be ready to avenge themselves against their enemies on that day. The couriers rode out in haste on their royal horses at the king's urgent command. The law was also issued in the royal fortress of Susa. Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal blue of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced, and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. In every province, in every city, where the king's command and edict reached, gladness and joy took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday. And many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. This is the word of God 
Praise be to God. You may be seated. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. Ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. These are the first words of the opening of the African-American National Anthem. And if you're familiar with the song, you will know that it describes the oppression, suffering, injustice that African-Americans or they experienced the joy of freedom that they should have had from the beginning. Though composed decades after the Emancipation Proclamation, this song is commonly sung on June 19th, which is a holiday known as Juneteenth. For African Americans, we would call that Freedom Day, for that is the day that the institution of slavery, chattel slavery in our country, officially came to an end as the remaining few African Americans who were enslaved were freed from slavery. As they sing this song, many times we sing it with passion and with joy because we remember where we came from. We remember what we once were. And we celebrate with joy the freedom now that we enjoy. A great reversal had taken place for African Americans in this country on that day. They went from slavery. And when you remember what you have gone through, and you know what you now have, the proper response is to celebrate. It is, beloved, when a great reversal takes place in your favor, you cannot help but rejoice. And in this morning's text, that's what we will see the Jews do. They will rejoice in response to God providentially intervening in such a way that he brought about a great reversal for the Jews. They were once under the sentence of death. And because of what God has done, they're no longer under their sentence. They have life. And as we see what they do, it should remind us how we are to respond to God's providential work of redemption in our lives. So our big idea from this passage, it's an exhortation for us. If you don't take anything away, take this. Rejoice in response to God's redemptive reversal. Rejoice in response to God's redemptive reversal. Exhortations first, we seek the sovereign Lord. We celebrate his work of redemption. 
We seek the sovereign Lord and we celebrate his work of redemption. First, seek the sovereign Lord. Look at, verses, look at verse 1. It says, That same day King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. Y'all, this was a very long and eventful day. It goes all the way back to the middle of chapter 6, all the way up to this point right here. Haman has been identified as a traitor. He was hung on the gallows he constructed for Mordecai. And because he was identified as a traitor, his property was confiscated. And the king gave it to Esther. Then it says that Esther, she made known her relationship to Mordecai. This is a major detail as she has disclosed to the king her ethnic identity. Mordecai is commonly referred to as Mordecai the Jew. So what does that mean for Esther? <laughs> that she was a Jew. It was Mordecai who encouraged discretion for Esther to keep it silent that she was a Jew. And five years later, she makes it known. And so for five years, you had a Jew living like a Gentile among a pagan kingdom. Five years later, she confesses to her husband, who was the king, that she was a Jew. How did the king respond? Well, in the providence of God, he didn't smite her. In the providence of God, he didn't chide or condemn her. Haman has recently kept something secret, and a secret came out. Esther revealed a secret, but she didn't get the same ending. And how was it? It is because in the kindness of God, the king showed favor. Here we see God's hand all over this situation and all over the story of the book of Esther. His providence is, she brings in her relative. Mordecai, he was brought in and then he was exalted. He filled a vacancy in the king's kingdom. Second in command, he replaces Haman. He receives riches, royalty, and the king's signet ring. Y'all, you would have thought that this would be the end of the story because it is so sweet. And as sweet as it is, this still ain't the end. Because for Esther and the Jews, there were two problems going on. They have eliminated the enemy, but the edict is still in effect. So in verses 3 to 6, Esther seeks to deal with that problem. In verse 3, she is distressed and emotional in regarding to the plight of the Jews. It says that she ongoingly fell down at the king's feet, begged and pleaded for him to revoke the edict. When in verse 4, the king shows favor, and in verse 5 and 6, you will see her request. She said, if it pleases the king and I have found favor with him, if the matter seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents, the scheme in Haman, 
son of Hamadatha the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that will come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? Here, Esther, she was methodical in her appeal. You see nothing mentioned of justice or injustice. You didn't even see her allude to the king's complicity in this injustice. No, she knew that wouldn't get her anywhere. But instead, what she does in her appeal, it is a mixture of being formal and making it personal. In the first and third part of the appeal, she's being formal. She says, if it pleases the king, she says, if the matter seems right to the king, and then she gets personal with it. She says, if I have found favor with him and I am pleasing in his eyes. Here, Esther, she honors the king and also pulls on his heartstrings, making known that a reversal would love your wife well. The destruction of her people, it would utterly devastate her. Here we see Esther interceding because she is one of the Jews and she cares for them. Y'all behold Esther's maturity and transformation. You think about chapter 4. When the edict went out, Mordecai told Esther to go and Tunt almost came off as if she was more concerned for herself than for her people. Making known that if I were to go, I would likely get killed. Mordecai may have convinced her after he responded for them, being more concerned about them than herself. And y'all, this is a work that God does in his people. Only God can do that. The reality is sin is so pervasive within people that as we grow, we don't grow out of sin. It is deeply ingrained in us. We don't grow out of selfishness. We are saved out of it by the grace of God. And when God saves us in Christ Jesus, we begin to reflect his love and his care for others. Because the reality is God's love and his compassion is always outward focused. In love, he created us. And when we rebelled against him, in love, he had compassion upon us. And in Christ, we are loved with the very same love that the Father has for the Son. Beloved, sin has corrupted us. And as I said last week, it has made us self-centered and self-absorbed. But we have been sanctified, and we are being sanctified, growing and conforming to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And as we seek our Lord and Savior, we begin to look more and more like him. It is impossible and corporately and not progress in conformity to the likeness of Jesus. It is impossible. Sanctification is slow, but it will happen and it will be evident. The more we seek the Lord, the more we grow in being like him. And one of the ways, one of the primary ways by which it displays itself is through love. 
where our concerns would no longer just be for ourselves, but it would be for others. Our prayers, the subject of them would no longer be me, 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 but others as we're concerned about them. We begin to be zealous to do good for other people by God's grace. As we have been the object of Jesus' compassion, we begin to have compassion upon others who are suffering and in need. Beloved, and if that's going to happen, we must first seek our king. Notice what Esther did in her distress. She sought the king. The only she didn't go into the teacher's lounge and slander. She didn't take her problems on Facebook and complain. She went to the king. Beloved, what do you do in your distress? A whole lot of grumbling taking place. And some even excuse it, saying that it is a productive way to get it all out there. To which I would say, how much more productive would it be to have that conversation with fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord who will hear you out, who will point you back to Christ, and who will pray for you? How much more productive would it be to actually cast all of our cares upon the God who cares for us? You know, growing up, my mom and I, we love to watch the show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Anybody familiar with that show? Got a number of folks. All right, cool. I don't have to explain it. Now, we love to watch the show. And sometimes, you know, the contestants, they are answering the questions that Regis is given, and they are making their way to potentially getting a million dollars. And my, my mom and I, we, we, we answer the questions ourselves. And to our surprise, we get some of them right. Like, man, maybe we should go on the show. <laughs> and there are times when the contestant has been stumped by a question. You know, he thinks it's maybe one of these two answers. And so um, it's one of three lifelines. You can ask the audience. You can um, get 50-50, maybe eliminate two answers. Or you could phone a friend. Now, to be frank, my favorite lifeline would be phone a friend. And the reason is... Because if you have a brilliant friend, it only works if you have a brilliant friend, too, by the way. <laughs> but if you have a brilliant friend, they're knowledgeable, they love you, they care for you, they're for you, and they're willing to help you. Okay? So that's the reason why I would go with phone a friend. Beloved, in the Christian life, we have a lifeline. And it's not just for one trial. We have a lifetime lifeline. And it's not phone a friend. It's phone your father who reigns over the cosmos. Your father who is in heaven. Beloved, when we pray to him, we have the ears and the attention of the one who rules over all of creation. He is so powerful that only one word can speak to a raging storm and the storm stops. He has peace to give towards his people, a peace that surpasses all understanding. That in the midst of the calamity and the uncertainty, we can have peace. Beloved, no situation is too hard for him. 
And the Bible says that he is the God of hope who fills his people with all joy and peace as we believe in him. And get this, he cares for you. No, seriously, he cares about you. So much so that he commands us to seek him. Matthew 7 and 7, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and that door will be open. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives his disciples a parable by which that we are to persistently pray seeking the Lord. He wants us to seek him. Beloved, Esther sought the king, the one who had authority to do something about the situation. And we are to seek our heavenly father. How is your prayer life? The reality is, beloved, God is so good and we are so weak and life is so hard that we have so many reasons to pray to our God who reigns over all things. You're disappointed, discouraged, doubting, or distressed. Do you take it to God in prayer? How is your prayer life? To very little, then something is off. Could it be that you're doubting God's power or doubting his compassion? Or that you're thinking too highly of yourself. But I want you to know, none of that comes from revelation. That comes from one's own mind. What I would encourage you to do is seek the Lord in the scriptures. Because as God has revealed himself in his word, it beckons us to come near to him. Every attribute of God is for us in Christ Jesus, and so we should draw near to him and seek him by faith. Here, Esther, she interceded before the king on behalf of the Jews. And look at the king's response. Verse 7. It says, the king said to Esther, look, I have given Haman's estate to you. He was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. He says, write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews and seal it with the revoked. So the king makes known. He says, I've dealt with the enemy. Because Esther was asking for the edict to be revoked, but Persian law says that when an edict goes into law, it is irrevocable. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 19. When the king's counselor said if the king, if it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree, let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it cannot be revoked. Despite its injustice, the king cannot revoke the law, but he does give a concession. In verse 8, he makes known that he can't undo it, but he does permit them to write a counter edict. Whatever you want for the Jews, he's promising to sign off on it. And once again, we see the providence of God at work, working in real time, in a real situation, to accomplish his purposes to protect his people. 
Now, the thing for us to think about is when did the king give that allowance? Sought the king after she begged and wept and pleaded. In the providence of God, she was successful. She didn't get what she wanted, but she got the next best thing. Beloved, if a wicked king can be this generous, then how much more will our wise, good, gracious, sovereign, and just father, the very one who is always for us and who has been for us before the foundation of the world, this should incline us to seek him and his will, knowing that he may very well grant our petition. Now, as we seek the Lord, it's important for us to know that God is not a genie. God is not a genie, meaning our wish is not his command. God is not a gumball machine that we put in the 25-cent prayer and then we get the gum that we want. Instead, he invites us to approach his throne. He invites us to pray, and we are to pray, your will be done. Because he is God, and it is his purposes, his will, that he will accomplish. Jesus taught us to pray as we saw in the scripture reading. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We follow Jesus' example in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he prayed for the cup to pass him by, how did he conclude that prayer? Not my will, but yours be done. Be empty words and merely a formality, but it should not be for the people of God. This is to be the very heartbeat for all of God's children in Christ Jesus. We seek him and we joyfully submit ourselves to his will because it is good, for he is good. And a part of his goodwill, sometimes God will say yes. And sometimes he will say no. And it's easy to praise him in the yeses. But what about when God says no? It's important for us to know that when God says no, he is, he is as loving and gracious and good and kind and for us as he is when he grants our petition. And the only way you would know that is if you seek the Lord in his word. Let me address the children in the room. Children, I want you to know that God is a relational God and that he loves you and you. Your parents love you dearly. They take care of you. They protect you. They watch over you. And God loves you more. And God loves you so much that he wants you to come to him Jesus himself says, let the little children come to me. Adults aren't the only ones who need Jesus. Children do as well. 
and adults aren't the only ones that Jesus invites to come to him and to seek him. He invites children as well. So parents, I would encourage you to teach your children what does it mean to seek Jesus. Talk to them about his love, his holiness, his forgiveness, his compassion, his provision, his care. Teach these things now and hope that they would seek him now. And so the Lord, he commands us to seek him in Christ. He invites us in. He beckons us to seek him. And may we also celebrate his work of redemption. Look at verses Look at verse 9. It says, on the 23rd day of the third month, that is the month Sivan, the royal scribes were summoned. Everything was written exactly as Mordecai commanded the Jew, for the Jews to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the 127 provinces from India to Cush. The edict was written to everyone in their own language and to the Jews in their own script and language. And so they had nine months to change the edict that Haman signed into law. As two months had passed, they had nine months to counter that edict and to spread the news. And so Mordecai began to go to work. They were working nonstop, and they wrote like they were running out of time because they actually were. Like Haman's edict in chapter 3, It was about the Jews, and it was for everyone. And so this edict was about the Jews and for everyone. We see what was written in verses 11 and 12 where it says, The the king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. So this edict is very symmetrical to Haman's edict in chapter 3. It countered everything that Haman commanded. Here God, he turned the tables and flipped the script. It was on the same day. It was concerning the same people. But now the Jews are no longer defenseless. They can defend themselves from their enemies and only, only, only from their enemies. They didn't have the freedom to destroy whoever they wanted or those they didn't like. It was exclusively in response to those who were hostile to them. Now one may be thinking, Pastor, Does this give us the license to throw hands with anyone who despises us for the color of our skin or the confession of our Savior? And if you're thinking that, the answer is absolutely not. You know, churches, as churches, we can't touch up our enemies with holy hands. You may be wondering, well, Pastor, how does this apply to us? Well, let's get in the lab, and I'll bring it to our level. First thing, it's important for us to remember that the Jews, 
were God's covenant people in the old covenant. As I said last week, God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Well, here are these enemies, they were seeking to destroy the Jews. And so what did God do? He arose in defense of his people because he is faithful to his promises. These enemies, these nations, along with Haman and the Agagites, they were enemies of the Jews. And so God is defending them, being the Jews. They were under God's judgment, and oftentimes God's instrument of judgment was the Israelites. Think about the conquest in the book of Joshua. They were to go and destroy these pagan nations who were living in the promised land. And it was God's judgment upon those nations. In Genesis chapter 15, God made known to Abraham that he is sending this people. He will bring them into a promised land. And the sins of the Amorites, they are not yet complete. In Leviticus chapter 18, verses 24 and 25, God is telling the covenant people that the land is going to vomit these pagan nations for their rebellion against God. And the very instrument that God is going to use to destroy them would be the Jews. And details matter. Think about Haman's ethnicity. He was an Amalekite. So we talked about sermons ago, the Amalekites, they were a people who opposed the Israelites. There was this history of hostility between the Amalekites and the Israelites because the Amalekites opposed them right after they were delivered from slavery in Egypt and opposed them from generation to generation. Follow me just a little bit more and I will bring it to us. So you have this history of hostility. In Israel's history, the first king is who? King Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, God told Saul to go and destroy all of the Amalekites. But Saul didn't obey. He didn't kill all the Amalekites. And guess in whose lineage Mordecai is a part of? He is of the lineage of King Saul. For Mordecai is a Benjaminite, as we saw in chapter 2, and he's from the lineage of Kish. So was King Saul. And so what Mordecai is doing here, this edict gives them the, the defense. It gives them the right to defend themselves, and Mordecai is making up for Saul's disobedience. So what's going on, and how does it apply to us in the New Covenant? I'm glad you asked. Well, the Son of God, he became man, walked the earth that he created, Jesus Christ. He is the promised son of David. He is the promised son of Abraham. He obeyed all of God's commands, and on the cross he died. He died so that he would not destroy his enemies but deliver them from the judgment that we rightfully deserve. The question is, who are his enemies? Jew and Gentile. We have rebelled against God. We have opposed him in his ways. We are under his judgment. And the very God who we rebelled against, that God loves us. 
And as we heard in the assurance of pardon, Romans chapter 5 says, But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death, through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? So through the gospel of Jesus Christ and giving up his son, God doesn't want to judge his enemies. He wants to save them in Christ. Today is the day of salvation. The gospel goes forth to all people, telling those who oppose God, who are under his judgment, to repent and trust in his son and be reconciled. And by his grace, we who were once his enemies have been saved and reconciled. In light of that, how are we to respond to those who persecute us? They don't catch these hands. They catch our compassion. We pray for their repentance. We desire for them to trust in Jesus and be forgiven and be saved. We follow Jesus' example as Peter makes known in 1 Peter chapter 2. That when reviled, he didn't revile in return. We're to, to involve the governing authorities. And we entrust them in the entire situation to the Lord. Praying for, that, praying for their salvation while also knowing that there would be a day when the day of salvation would give way to the day of vengeance. And God will judge all who have rejected Jesus and opposed his bride. And so we pray for our persecutors. Beloved, here we see God providentially brought about a great reversal for the Jews. Think about it. They, it went from being a day of doom to a day of defense to a day of deliverance. Because God will deliver his people as he is faithful to his promises. Had to get the news out. They didn't have email or Twitter or instant messenger. Their best option were some of the fastest horses, and so that's what they did. And in verses 15 to 17, what we will see is multiple reversals that God brought about. Look at verse 15. It says, Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal blue and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. The last time we heard about Mordecai's apparel, he was rocking sackcloth and ashes. But here he is in robes of royalty. He went from being hated by Haman to being exalted to the second in command and helping save his people. Not just Haman, peep the city. Go on in verse 15, it says, The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. In chapter 3, verse 15, after Haman's edict went out, it says that the city was in confusion. So they went from confusion to celebration. Well, what changed? This new edict that favored the Jews. Y'all, they were live. 
And they ain't the only ones who were alive. Keep on reading. It says, verse 16, and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. For verse 3, they fasted, wept, and lamented. And here God has turned their mourning into gladness. Y'all, it says that they were turned. I'm just messing around. That's the Urban Dictionary version. But they were excited. They celebrated. They rejoiced. They had honor. There was a celebration in the holiday. God, they, they were rejoicing in response to God and his mercy intervening on their behalf. And when God intervenes for the favor of his people and brings about a reversal, the proper response is to rejoice, to celebrate. This great reversal, it points us to the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ that God has brought about by his grace. Beloved, we were the ones who rebelled against God, who were under his condemnation. And God in his love intervened. And it wasn't in response to us seeking him. He in his love sought us. Jesus came on a rescue mission. And it would be costly. Because God is just, he can't revoke his judgment. He has to punish it. And that's exactly what he did through Jesus. He poured out his holy wrath upon his son in our place for our transgressions. Isaiah would say it this way, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. In Christ alone, God's wrath has been satisfied. And we who are in Christ, we have been redeemed. And a great reversal has taken place that we went from being doomed to destined for eternal life in Christ Jesus. And here's the thing, beloved. God has declared us righteous in Christ. And he can't, nor will he ever, revoke that declaration for us who are in Christ Jesus. So how should we respond? Should we be stoics? Careless? This is the greatest news we have ever heard. Christ has saved us. We are to rejoice in response to his work of salvation. Not only now, but now through all eternity. Because redemption in Christ is too great only here and now. We will celebrate it with the saints for all of eternity. Beloved, as we read in Revelation 5, what are the saints saying? They're saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And they don't get bored. They don't get tired. Because Jesus and his work is too glorious. And we who are the benefactors of this redemption, we are to rejoice with great joy. And not only should we celebrate this, we should share it with others. Think about the text in verses 13 to 15. News was spreading that a new edict has occurred. 
And, y'all, we have even better news than that. We have news that enemies of God can be reconciled to him through faith in Jesus. That enemies of God can be forgiven of their sins, not because they did more, but because Christ paid it all, and all they have to do is trust in him. It's the greatest news ever uttered. Greatest news that could ever hit one's ears. And so if you are visiting here and you know yourself to not be a Christian, friends, I am glad that you are here. I want you to know that God loves you and he sent his son to save sinners. If you want to go from being under the judgment of God to being justified by faith or Yeah, declared righteous in front of him, saved by him, embraced by him. It is through Jesus Christ alone. Beloved, this passage, it teaches us that God is faithful to his promises. Every promise made by God is a promise kept. Even in the darkest hour, it seems like he won't, he won't do it. He certainly will. It also teaches us that God is our deliverer, that God is our redeemer. Because of the great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus, we have nothing to fear in this life. We have nothing to fear in the life to come, but so much to anticipate with great joy. So how should we respond? We should celebrate Jesus' work of redemption. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we do praise you for your mercy, your grace, your kindness towards us in Christ. That you would pursue us that you would save us, that you would justify us by your grace. That in Christ, we are secure. That nothing and no one can take us out of your hands. Father, we praise you for your saving work. God, may we be a people who rejoice always in response to your work of redemption. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.